the RTE Rugby World Cup podcast, sponsored by Bank of Ireland. Hello and welcome along to the RTE Rugby World Cup podcast, the final RTE Rugby World Cup podcast before we go back next week to just the plain old RTE Rugby podcast. A bit of housekeeping first up. Obviously, we've been coming to you a couple of times every week, Tuesdays and Thursdays over the last eight weeks or so. From next week, we'll be back to our usual one a week podcast. So for those who may have started listening to us during the World Cup, we hope you do hang around. We've been having great numbers over the last eight weeks and we hope to to keep those up as we start looking back on the URC next week and, and the Champions Cup and then the into the Six Nations next year as well. So please do come back and join us for our podcast, usually up on a Wednesday afternoon. So we hope we'll, uh, we'll see you then. Back to the job at hand though. And Johnny Holland and Bernard Jackman are with me to look back on Saturday's Rugby World Cup final. South Africa, 12-11 winners against New Zealand. Uh, we'll also reflect a little bit more later on as well on the World Cup in general and Ireland's campaign and what comes next for them. But Birch, we're we're more than two days out from the final now and the the hot takes have been starting to bake in the oven over the over the last couple of days. Um, the knives coming out for South Africa's style of play all of a sudden. Um, like I, I'm pretty sure I know what your opinions are in this anyway, having seen you on Saturday night and, mm. and on against the head last night. But it seems to be deja vu all over again, where South Africa have pulled off a a remarkable World Cup success, and here is so much of the conversation just around oh they're kicking a lot, they're kicking too lot, the style of play isn't good enough. Um, what are your own what are your own thoughts on that for those? Yeah. Who- I admired I admired them. I admired them. They they have a, a way of playing that's natural to the way they're brought up um and the way they play the game. Uh from, from schoolboys into universities, into professional or into clubs, and it works, it's successful. Uh, and I actually admire admire them for, for sticking to their guns. I, I don't think any of us should try and dictate what's beautiful and what's not about in rugby. I think there's lots of different ways to skin a cat and uh I think there's beauty in their in their play as well, in their conviction, um, and how they implement it, and it's obviously been successful for them. But even if it wasn't, if they lost their final by a point, they wouldn't second guess themselves. They they totally believe in that, and it's up to other teams to be able to to uh, to beat them. And and unfortunately, uh, for the others, their defensive effort, along with obviously the set piece pressure they bring, the kicking game, the goal kicks, it's a very strong. Uh, set of ingredients to to try and win. So yeah, I I, I know some people might say it's pleasing on the eye. Uh, I wouldn't like every team to play that way, but I I I, I like the contrast as well, and um, I like how they do it with absolute commitment and application, which is which is second to none. So no, uh, I think uh, I think full credit to them to be honest, and it's it's a massive achievement what they've done. It's the old the old boxing line like styles make fights. You want to yeah. see contrasting styles going up against each other and Johnny like I, I tell you what it wasn't the prettiest game of rugby on Saturday that we've ever seen but I don't think anybody could have sat through that that final second half and I think the final 20 minutes in particular and not just been absolutely gripped by the tension by the physicality by the the stakes that were there and how every tiny little mistake seemed enormous in the grand scheme of things I don't know what your thoughts on it were. I was absolutely enthralled by that last quarter in particular. Well, I was too. And I think like, you know, you've said it there that 
people give out about the style and everything else. But I'm I'm like Bernard. I think there's a there's a beauty of some form in there. I know I'm a, a farmer back and I'm an attack coach, but like that's part of attack, knowing that you need a set piece, knowing that you need a kicking game, knowing when to kick the ball away. Like, you know, I think the defense was so um was so strong that they didn't actually really want to play with the ball that much. They wanted to play on transition attack, you know. So there's a lot of uh so a lot of clever plays in there from South Africa that people don't realise. And then, you know, you think about teams that haven't gotten through the, the knockout stages very well, obviously Ireland included in that. And um, you think about what South Africa do differently and they put everything into their set piece. You know, they you can't you can't win a tournament without a set piece like them. Now, their set piece didn't go for them in the in the final. I think they had a scrum against the head last, didn't they? Which is very unlike them in New Zealand scrum was class. Obviously, their scrum and line out is very good as well. And they've gotten to the final. So you think about what, what makes teams um, a knockout animal and what, what gets them there is your scrum, your line-out. Um, even with Dion Free coming in there, you know, they were very clever around that. It didn't shake them at all at all. You know, the first one, I think he threw to the front of the line-out, just got out of there. Um, Curtly Irons had another fast line-out that I don't think they'd have taken um, in another game, but because Dion Free was on the pitch, they were prepared for things going against them. And I think that's the big difference in that, you know, they're a big set-piece team, but when the set-piece goes against them, you know, they're also prepared for that. They, they don't really freak out because, you know, it's been so good. It's it's a bit of an outlier and they rely on the rest of their game. But their kicking game, Pollard, 13 out of 13. You know, you just, their difference is like New Zealand didn't kick um, 100% in the final. And these are um, the big differences between between the teams. But like, there's um there's an ingenuity in the way that South Africa play as well. As there's a braveness around what Razzie and Jack are doing. Um, the way they defend. You won't see other teams defend like that and be comfortable with it. You know, it's very much outside their... Um, the players in the defenders' comfort zone, but they just make it look so comfortable. Like, and the it was, it was one thing you mentioned there. Obviously, the set piece. And this day last week, I was on with BJ Botha and Mike McCarthy, and we were talking about just how dominant that South Africa scrum was against England, and how that's the springboard to to them winning a World Cup final. And Birch, the interesting about interesting thing about it was, and it also shows the adaptability that South Africa had was that they didn't have set-piece dominance at the weekend. At the scrum, they because they lost Bonky and Bonambi early on, Dion Fury came in after after three minutes. And while the scrum went fine in the grand scheme of things, they didn't have a dominance there. At the line-out, they lost four out of their ten throws. So they had to find a different way to go about winning this game. It wasn't a case of getting themselves a scrum 40 metres out, milking a penalty and allowing Andre Pollard to, to kick a goal. They had to find different ways of doing it. Yeah, and that's that's what's most um admire uh, I admire most about them is that probably going into the game, they probably felt um well obviously when Bongi went off it changed a little bit, but that they would have had set piece dominance, but uh, um and then to not actually have that, not be able to get those entries into the game through being able to milk a penalty in your own twenty two off a of scrum, not having uh, a regular supply of line out ball, they didn't miss a beat. They didn't miss a beat. They just found other ways to get possession. Um, and I, I think that's what's that's what's so admirable about them is that, or so admiring in them is that they are rock solid mentally, you know. And you don't win three games by a point, um, with everything going your way. It, it, they're just so comfortable going to those last twenty minutes, whether they're ahead or behind, and everybody stays on plan and they just find a way to win. And it's it's incredible. It's it's the one thing you you'd want to put into teams, um, but there's no. There's no magic ingredient. There's no course you can do, um, and, and you know you can get teams fitter, you can get teams stronger, but having a team that don't panic and uh, just find a way to grind it out is is phenomenal. 
you were on you were on against the head last night, Birch, and one of the main things you were talking about was just how aggressive and how hard working they were in defence. And there were there were so many examples of it across the eighty minutes, right from the start, where you have Aben Etzebeth absolutely milling Richie Mwanga with an unbelievable tackle inside. I, I think it was someone put I think it was the first tackle of the game itself. And that's yeah, just look at own, and it comes right down to the end where you have Faf de Clerk diving for his life to clip the ankles of, of Dalton Papali and then mm. over on the far side where you've the, the knock on being forced. There were so many examples of just tireless work. Not even just to make dominant tackles, but to make any kind of a tackle. Yeah, no, it, it was phenomenal. It was one to fifteen and um sorry and then obviously everyone who came off the bench uh it's just look at there's no team are going to work up final and don't put their bodies on the line and give it everything but it's their ability to do it um under extreme conditions like the ball and play time was high 38 minutes the pressure of a world cup final um knowing that one error could could basically cost you but yes they they scrambled when they had to scramble but more importantly and this is absolutely key they pressurize the All Blacks into mistakes, uh, mistakes that the All Blacks tend not to make, um, and it's not by, it's not by chance. Um, you know, so, some people call them unforced errors, but I see them as forced errors because of, mm. of everything that they bring, everything they bring that an orthodox type of defense, that ability to make big hits, like like I showed last night with Peter Steph or or Estebes, um, the jackal threat or counter rook threat on the edges. Um, it's it's phenomenal, and I like, look at this system isn't vastly different than the one that won in the last, the last World Cup. And you know, every defense coach in the world can study that system and copy it if they want, but no one goes to the extreme that that the Springboks do because it's nearly impossible to get players to buy into it to that level yeah. and to do the to do the work off the ball. So, like um, when you mentioned, you know, go down the. Uh, Faf got that Tampa attack on Papalihi. There was cover coming. You know, and whoever whatever you do, there's cover coming. Even the All Blacks try. I mean, uh, it's a it's a good pass across over the top to Talia. Uh, but there's four Springboks absolutely hearing it towards that touchline. And it's incredible by Talia to break to basically beat four people to get that pass away. And that's kind of what you have to do to beat that Springboks defense is you need an individual who can do something extraordinary. Um, because they're not going to let you score um, easily. Also, they're very, I would say, they play the laws to the absolute limit. I mean, well, is there an argument that maybe there's a yellow card before that, you know, for freedom, uh, repeated infringements? Um, they get water carriers onto the field at the, the ideal time for them. Um, I would say they push the HIA to the bound, HIA rules to the limit during the competition to get breaks into people and, like, just think about the Jesse Creel uh, head contact with Sam Kane. No HIA there because they're no sub back, you know. Um, and you think about during the competition, uh, they've been saying, oh, HIAs, we, we always want to get players off. Um, and particularly with their forwards, I mean, they were able to get guys on and off quite quite well. So they do push the Laos to the absolute limits and they won the World Cup by a point. And, and uh, so you have to say as well that that ruthlessness that game smarts that playing on the edge is also a factor you know it's also a factor and and that's probably how how mean you have to be to to win a world cup they, I, I don't want to make it too much about ireland but johnny like do ireland have that 
killer instinct that that will to to push things a little bit beyond the limits to to chance their arm a little bit yeah i don't know i think in hindsight it's a bit different i think there was a complete different style around what they were doing it was a very clean approach wasn't it and it was all out attack um it was lovely kind of uh, phase play and everything else and finding holes and stuff like that so um i don't know i think you'd have to set yourself up very differently to to kind of compare and contrast that like wouldn't you i don't I I think there's a killer instinct in people like Johnny Sexton, like you know. So I don't think, um, I don't think there's a lack of ruthlessness there. I think they were kind of ruthless with their with their attacking play in one sense until it until it didn't work at the very end, like you know. But I think there's a and I I think Ireland are you see a lot of um clips in behind the goal and stuff like that where you see Gary Ringrose swinging all the way around and attack and he makes up serious ground. He does it in defence as well, but so you can compare and say yes, they do have those kind of efforts in them as well. But the Cheslin Colby one where uh, Ricky Oan has gone into the yeah. corner um, and Curtly Aaron's actually got him out anyway, didn't he? But uh, Cheslin Colby passed out Andre Pollard in that in the backfield cover and just decided he's going to get him. And uh, I think Bernard, you showed that against the head last night. It's just an unbelievable clip of kind of desire. And I think the the way South Africa bring their people into it and everything else, I don't think it's, um, I don't think it's just kind of words, you know, I think you can see the way they're celebrating and they're going touring South Africa and everything else. I think it does mean a lot to them and you can see that coming out in their play. Um, and I think Razi has done that in all of, all of his career. He just gives them uh, kind of a higher power, a bigger reason to do the things that they do. And you find something extra mentally, like Bernard has kind of touched on. Um, but I was disappointed in one part of their one part of their play. Um, I think they, they did three or four drop goal attempts when they just weren't they weren't on. Like the Andre Pollard one was possibly the right decision because of the time the time in the game and who he is. But I think there were some outrageous uh, decisions from fifty meters with a wet pitch. You know, there was five and six second rock averages, wasn't there? Uh, rock speed averages so there was there was nothing going on and they decided to kick drop goals I think uh, Willemsa had actually open field or Cheson Colby I can't remember which one of them was had open field in front of them for a counter attack to get into the opposition half where they could buy their penalty through attack and play or they can you know kill the game over there but they, they decided to kick a goal which I just didn't really agree with I know one of them goes over and you think they're geniuses but they were yeah. low percentage plays so I was kind of disappointed with that part but the rest of it you have to absolutely commend like yeah, I disagree, Johnny. I thought it was genius. <laughs> okay, I thought it was uh, no, but it, it's it's them, and I, I I'm flipping it right. So they're thinking, and I I look at they were low percentage plays, absolutely. But I actually think as long as the ball went dead, which it did, except for the one that Pollard got got uh, blocked down on, which was actually, as you say, it was actually ironically the best chance and the best guy to do it. Um, I think that that's absolutely soul destroying for the All Blacks because effectively it burns the clock. Um, it gives the Springboks a break and they have to go again from a similar position. Okay, from a goal line dropout, it can be a 22 dropout and the ball can go further. But I just, I think you put yourself in the mind and I, I spoke to one of the Argentinian coaches after that first game against England. Now, George Ford was kicking him over, right? But it basically spooked him that anywhere in their half, effectively, he doesn't even have to concede a penalty that these lads could add three points. And in that game, Three points was was going to be you know uh, a lovely cushion. So, uh, as in terms of a game, yeah, for sure, it doesn't make it a spectacle. But I thought it was perfect game management by them, given they were ahead. But uh, I, I yeah, I agree there were low percentage shots, but I think they weren't thinking about that. They were thinking about um, the the outcome would be that the All Blacks had to go back and 
basically go under the post again and come back out with a with a new plan. So um I get I, that I, yeah. kind of feeling as well of like being able to score anywhere. So you have to exit out of your own half no matter what. I, I understand that yeah. part. There's pressure building there that you wouldn't think about when you're looking at the game. Yeah. Um but I think there's also when you get an easy trot from someone like Ovey or Willemse into at least ten meter line, they're already in their own half anyway, without the ball. Mm. You know, so yeah. I do I do get it. I think the Andre Pollard one uh, because he got blocked down, actually put them under serious pressure. With Peter Smith-Tide actually yeah. made a huge hit there, didn't he? Um, mm. So funnily enough, that was that was the best one, like you said. But yeah, the other ones, I get that as well. It's a different way of looking at the game from their eyes, and that's what we're so. Uh, that's what we don't understand when you look at mm. the game through South African lenses. It's different, like you know, with yeah. the way Radley and Jack think, it's absolutely completely abstract and different. But I think they could have burned the clock in a different way too. But sure, you know, said just, anyway, just to just to go full circle on my point around that gamesmanship, like. Um, I don't think we, every team now needs to go. Oh, let's be South Africa because you can't do it. You just need to find out. You need to find out what way is going to win your World Cup in four years' time. Um, now South Africa have been able to have a similar type plan and with a lot of the same players, to be fair. Um, and it's and it's worked by the tiniest of margins. Um, but that's not necessarily going to be the way the next World Cup is going to be won. Um, and that's that's the challenge, Neil. So I don't think we all need to become cynical and. And, and and try and um you know really push the laws to the edge. What we were doing was a very effective way of playing, and and we only barely came up short. And and who's to say we wouldn't have beaten, you know, wouldn't have won a final. But the reality is, it's not about what won this World Cup. It's about what will win the next one. Um, is, is the key. Um, you mentioned obviously earlier on, Birch, three one point wins in a row in the knockout stage. Um. So if you combine it all together, South Africa had the toughest pool. If you, you know Ireland and and Scotland, certainly by the world rankings anyway, it was the toughest pool in the World Cup. They then had the hosts in the quarterfinal, beat them by one point. They had England, the only Northern Hemisphere team who've who've won a World Cup in the semi final, beat them by a point. And they had the three time winners, the All Blacks, in the final, beat them by one point. Stuart Farmer, who's a brilliant um rugby statistician, pointed out uh yesterday or it might have been the day before, it's the first time since England in 1937 that a men's test side have won three games in a row by one single point, which just shows how, how remarkable a run that is. All of those things considered, um, Johnny, I might go to you first, all of those things considered, is this the best World Cup win out of the out of the 10 we've seen? Yeah, uh, I'm not old enough to see all 10 of them. Uh, but uh, no, I, I think it's, it's remarkable. It's absolutely remarkable what they did. And like, you know, you look back at 2019, they lost their first pool game and they went down and won it. In this, they lost to Ireland. And you think you could get spooked. And Bernard said there that this was, you know, maybe this isn't the way to win the next World Cup. But, you know, I thought this year was the year where France and Ireland, New Zealand would agree, but not as much. I thought they were going to move the ball around and, and kind of kill this way of playing, you know. But uh, South Africa showed that it's still not good rugby and you can still win it their way. And they have done that. I think the way they've, they've done it, losing to Ireland, who were world number one at the time, and then going through the rest of it, France were unbelievable in that game. You know, that was probably the best match of the tournament, was it? Um, I think it was anyway. And uh, and to do it just repeatedly, they didn't run out of steam. I think they were, you know, possibly getting there by the end of the final, running out of small bit of steam, but they actually just closed off the game to a degree. You know, if they had to go and win it again, I think they might have had another gear. Um, I think it's been, um, okay, I suppose I can't say um, objectively that it's the best one ever, but as far as I can remember, it definitely is. Birch? Yeah, I think it is. I think it is. Um, and you look at what they've done. I don't think any team has had such a hard, hard path to it. Um, Don Lennon last night was was 
who's been at every final, I think, was saying for him it's probably the, the second best final um, in itself. Because a lot, of, I don't know, some people are saying it was a crap final, uh, but I don't, I don't, I, I just, I don't get that. No, yeah. no, I know, but but like, just yeah. trust, I trust his judgment. Having been yeah. at them all, and he, he said ninety five will probably never rematch because of the, you know, the the Mandela and. And underdog status and and the first World Cup back for South Africa, but he thought last or Saturday night was was up there and and probably second. So I, I said I, I trust his judgment. Yeah, but like obviously the style is a very subjective thing, and I I get some people um might find watching that kind of rugby a little bit boring. Um, but the what's really really impressive about it, and it was a word words you used, Johnny, as well a couple of minutes ago. They did it their way. If you look at nearly everything they've done over the last couple of months from selection, whether it was going back to the back to August and picking their, their squad where they had two hookers and played most of the world cup with one out and out hooker. They had uh, four scrum halves and only used one in the final. They obviously seven, one was a, a talking point the whole way through it. There were so many things that they did throughout the last couple of months that no other sides are doing. And it's very, very impressive to to plough that kind of lone furrow and be the one standing out and making so many bold calls and having the having the balls to stand over it at the end of the day. I think that's the best part of it because like we ha- I haven't seen a seven one before that. I don't think I haven't paid much attention to it anyway. It might have been there, right? Um uh, I think once or twice uh it was discussed around this preparation, but even standing over something like that, you're completely on your own, vulnerable as a coach. I think anyone that's coached would understand this more than people just kind of throwing it out there. Um, replacing a hooker with an out half when you've only one other hooker. I think Dion Free is the unsung hero of the whole thing. The way he didn't flinch. You know, Bernard, you said there that they didn't flinch in general. I think he didn't flinch. He was unbelievable. Just got on with his job. Um, and yeah, they absolutely did it their own way. But, you know, I think even Razzie can do all that, put himself in the limelight, people waiting to cut him down. Like he's putting his his English Bulldog uh, on his Twitter when they're playing against um, England, you know, just kind of getting that out there, putting Bongi and Manambi as his header on Twitter on X. Um, you know, he kind of messes with things as well on top of that, that like he really puts himself out there as well as the tactical stuff. But people will talk about like, you know, creativity and they think it's a, a backline play or a breakout from a lineup. His creativity around rugby is unbelievable. Um, all the while actually sticking to what makes rugby union union, you know, so like scrum, Line out, mall, uh, line out defense, their actual defense, kicking at goal. They're all the things that makes rugby union its own variation. Like, you know, it's not league or it's not touch or throw the ball around, you know. So, like, they've done it by the by the absolute fundamentals of rugby union, but in their own creative way. And I think it's, uh, you know, to put yourself in the limelight like that and actually go and back it up and win it is is unbelievable from a coaching perspective, but from the whole group, to be fair, they were all bought into it. And that's his, uh, that's his and Jack's biggest, um, biggest strength I think and I think there's a bit of a they uh, they complement each other to a degree you can't have all the, the Razzie without Jack it just wouldn't work like you know yeah and that's what's going to be really interesting Birch is to see how Jack Nienaber how he acts and how he coaches and how he goes about things when when Razzie isn't there we see all the the mad selections and you're always I think a lot of us kind of assume maybe that it's it's Razzie Erasmus making these calls because he is a bit of an eccentric character but there has to be a bit of Ninaber in there as well in the the innovation and the and the creativity and and making some of those some of those interesting calls. It's going to be really fascinating to see how much of that he brings to Leinster now. 
Yeah, it's going to be. It's, it looks it looks like an inspired choice. I mean, um, because obviously they knew they were getting a good coach. Players who worked with him in Munster uh, spoke incredibly highly of him. He was a key man in the last World Cup, but um, he definitely has had a bigger role in, in this one. And listening to Felix Jones, listening to Sia Khaleesi, um, I spoke to Dion Fury about him after the uh, the France game, and. They were just waxing lyrical, and, and, and he definitely has a bigger say than maybe we give him credit for. Um, particularly the tactical side of things, Razi might be the one who makes the final say on on, on selection, or, or we're not we're sure that. I think it is Razi probably who has the big the big say on selection. I think Jack is always very respectful for Razi in terms of what he's done for him in terms of bringing him from being a physio to to being head coach of a of a country that won back to back World Cups, but. Um, by all accounts, he is absolutely obsessive about the game. Um, Bobby Skinsa was was telling me that when he got physio back in the day, he'd be rubbing his hamstring and he'd actually have a TV on looking at defensive sets. And he wasn't even the defense coach, you know. Um, and apparently, when he tries to sell something to the team in the box, he always says, "I've seen this before," because he reckons the game actually, while it's evolving, it kind of goes around in circles. So sure. things that worked. 20 years ago or were tried 20 years ago kind of come back in combined with something else so um, like that Leinster dressing room let's be honest it must be crying out for that new voice now you know which Stuart obviously haven't gone um, and let's failing failing really to get those trophies that you know they they, they certainly um, feel that they had a good shot of winning um, someone who's done that in, you know, at the highest, highest level, coming in um, with that experience, that confidence that his methods work, um, it'll be, it can only be good for Leinster. And I think it, it can be good for Irish rugby as well, because obviously if he can convert that team who played brilliant rugby all year into into being able to lift European trophies, uh, well, that will add to uh, the confidence that we can have going into Six Nations and next World Cup, etc. And Johnny, you you mentioned it in your column today on RT.ie. Like you you had the you were able to work with Razzie and and Jack Nienaber for for a short time, obviously before you you were forced to retire. But even in that little period, you got a a taste of what the two of them and partic- and specifically what Nienaber is like. Yeah, and it's a uh, it's a very personal thing, you know. That's what I was speaking about. It's uh, he he. I only had a couple of sessions. Well, I say a couple of sessions now, but it was about six or eight very intense weeks of of them taking many sessions per day, like you know. And Jack always talked talked about the the line in the sand, like draw a line in the dirt, and he beats you or you beat him. And it's a very kind of um, there's a lot of feeling around that. It's very kind of a there's an emotional response around your defense and everything else. But I think someone like like him going into Leinster again, we we speak with Ireland having that kind of clean look. You know, it's all very nice you know they, they win the game by loads of points most of the year and then they come down to the nitty gritty and they can do that as well but I think it's going to be um something to challenge the the status quo which I think they do unbelievably well Razzie and Jack and, and South Africa in general uh, I think the the players will get challenged more than ever but like um Bernard said there you know he he was a physio and then video analyst wasn't he before he came in to be a coach he sees the game from so many different angles and he has seen the game from so many different angles it's data driven by all accounts inside there as well um, so it's uh, it's a very informed he's not just going to say something and try and get buy-in and it runs out of steam because players see some cracks in it it's thought about every different way from different angles with his different hats on and I think that's that's the thing that's um, you know so commendable about the whole thing but I, it'll be interesting to see how he 
how he uh, dirties the Leinster game plan and uh, how he how he kind of makes them. I wouldn't say nasty. There's nothing nasty about how they play, but you know those that inverted commas like make them make them uh, a tough team to play against. Which I don't think they. I don't think they're a tough team to play against at the moment. I think they play a lot of um, nice branded rugby and and they're well able at set piece and everything else as well. But he'll bring a different dimension to them. It's going to be interesting to see if he can um, kind of drive on his own uh, coaching status as well. So, it that's a nice point to probably move it on to to reflections, kind of on the the wider Irish campaign and and what has to what's coming next in in twenty twenty four and um. Warning, I don't know, did you see Pat Spillane says we're all cheerleaders, the Irish rugby media. So this is your opportunity now, lads, to you really have to to dig in on this one and prove people wrong. Um on on Ireland, what are the priority positions going into 2024 that need to be fixed? And I I think out half obviously probably don't even need to speak about it because it is going to like Johnny Sexton isn't here anymore. So that will be addressed, whether it's going to be addressed right or wrong. Or if uh, you know Jack Crowley or Ross Byrne or whoever gets the opportunity takes it remains to be seen. But across other areas of the pitch, where do Ireland need to start finding uh, younger options, develop more options, develop depth rather than just kind of stuff for the future? Who takes that on? That yeah, well, loose head prop obviously and tight head prop, and I think you probably solve both of them with the same. At uh, the same time, that you have to look at maybe Porter moving back across to tight head once you find another couple of loose heads. I think that's easier. I'm looking, I'm looking at the tight heads that are in the the pathway, and um, we're not, we're not very rich there. Uh, particularly ones who can go and do what needs to be done at the top top end. And this isn't simple because you look at you look at England, right? England, um. Who's, where scrummaging has always been a big part of their game, they had to go back to Dan Cole, uh, Dan Cole, uh, Coles for the for the semi final, and mm. then their backup, those tight head prop Sinclair, who's a British and Irish line, who's been around for a long time. You could argue isn't that dominant tight head scrummaging prop that you may need at the highest level. So that, like I've been incredibly, uh, I'm incredibly demanding here of what I'm what I I think we might need. So because I think that's effectively what we should be doing. So. I think we will end up in a situation where Porter may have to move back across um, to, to the tight head side and then we need to fast track uh, and find some some more loose heads and, and I think there's two in Enster that have huge potential now. I'm thinking four years time so it'll be it'll be 24, 25 Jack Boyle and um, uh, and Paddy McCarthy uh, as just two but obviously there may be there may be more out there um, in the system but the reality is there's only a certain amount of 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 athletes or rugby players in every country that can get it done at the at the top end, and that's what we need to be focusing on. Um, I think we'll always produce lots of players who can be really good in the URC. Um, we can produce lots of teams who can be really good in under twenties level, but it's the three or four that we're going to need to find that can come into the team in four years' time and actually be match winners. Um, that's the that's a challenge, um, and that's what David Humphreys, uh, if he takes over from from uh, Nusa Four, uh, that'll be the big job he'll have to do to support Andy Farrell, um, in terms of trying to find those and, and manage those. And I think there's a big, there's probably in a couple of weeks' time, there's a big review of 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 this cycle, and and I think it's going to be incredibly positive, and and there's no blame on on any of the coaches or players because I think 
they 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 put together a, a very good campaign, and I don't give a shit what Pat Spillane thinks about it. The reality <laughs> is they lost the game uh, against the team who very close to winning the, winning the World Cup. So uh, I'm not judging on that at all. I'm just thinking about you know if you're going to be really high, if you're going to real high performance mindset, you're going to look at the whole way the game is set up here and um, see what we're doing to expand that player pool. Um, see what we're doing to find better athletes. See what we're doing to, to I suppose, in increase our depth. So Dion Fury is, is is an example, right? And again, like there's no some of that was luck. Like the, Saru didn't plan this. I mean, he left South Africa for financial reasons uh, because he thought he was never going to be a buck, right? So, and he went to play in France, and he ended up playing in Grenoble. So that's how I, I know him um, in Pro D two as a, as a seven who could play hooker, and he but he played in Leon. And again, he's not your 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 stereotypical top fourteen back row because he he's not a lineup option. Um, but he got lots of game time, was good off the bench, etc. And he ended up coming back to to South Africa probably just because he could. I know because his time in France was done, and the Stormers' contract was a way of reintegrating back. And yes, he becomes a key player in in a World Cup final with that experience, with that edge. And you heard Jack Nienabar talk about him. He's known him since he was 20 as uh, and believed in his character. And he becomes captain for a few minutes when C is in the bench, right? So, um, and and their demographic is players in Japan. And, and some people said, oh, how can you go to Japan and come back and, and, and be at the level required to win a World Cup? Well, maybe it's perfect. Maybe that's absolutely perfect for two seasons. And the All Blacks have done it plenty of time with guys taking sabbaticals. Um, and also, I think, and I'm 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 getting quite broad here, but is it better for our youngsters to go right? Uh, 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 but to be managed by there, if you can find them opportunities to play in different leagues and different a different competition, if they're being blocked in a province, because I actually don't really agree with moving players from one province to another that much. I think uh, it's nice to be a Munster man playing for Munster or a Leinster man playing for Leinster, a Connacht man playing for Connacht where you can or Ulster man. Um, I think you want to have a high percentage of those. So I'm not in favor of just getting the Leinster Academy and send them all over the place. But I think we can be better. I think we can be better at actually um, increasing our player pool by getting some players off our wage bill, right, mm-hmm. here, um, which allows a youngster to play, right? Uh, a youngster to play who has the quality. So suddenly in four years' time, you may have 15 more players to pick from, but also you have players who maybe pick up um, ex- valuable experience abroad and ideas and ideas and come back with those ideas because we kind of give Razzie and, and, and Jack unbelievable credit and they deserve it. But you can be sure that Faf de Klerk is picking up stuff, you know, when he when he's played away. Mossert, um, Quagga Smith, all, Dean Formulan having been an Ulster. Like all these guys coming back into the pot uh, for a period of time uh, can be actually quite exciting as well, you know. So there's the whole cohesion, which we obviously have, and it's everything's perfect, and we can do camps whenever we want. But there's other ways to, to look at it as well. Um, that maybe we have to look at, and, and maybe they'll draw a line through and say, "No, that won't work for us," which is absolutely fine. Um, but we probably do need to have that review where we look at everything. Um, and I said it's different from the normal World Cup review, which I think we just said, "Oh, that was wrong." Oh, we did we did too much S and C, or we got a selection wrong, or whatever. Whereas I think all that stuff would be pretty right. Um, it's what we can do as a as a country to try and equip ourselves for or whoever the coach is next time to have a better playing player pool in terms of depth, but try and find those three or four players who can make a difference. That's a 
Giants, there's an interesting point in there on like what Bert was saying, where if you look at South Africa and you have so many different rugby cultures that end up coming together into the Springbok team when when guys have been away, whether it's in France or Ireland or England or Japan even, and eventually they all come back around. And um, a lot of people might want to see Irish rugby completely open their doors and allow players go off to France or England and and still be selected. There will be others that don't want to see that happening because they want to see the best players playing in Ireland. Is there a is there a sweet spot somewhere in the middle where I don't know some people have mentioned you know the RFU investing or buying London Irish for example and that seems a bit far fetched considering the losses that are in the Premiership and uh, you're kind of chucking good money after bad but is there a potential there potential some some way to to form a strategic partnership with uh, one or two clubs in England or France where there is a kind of a or even down in down in New Zealand, like having players down in, in Super Rugby in New Zealand or Australia where they're getting to, the opportunity to go down there and there's an understanding that, you know, a player is, there there might be a two-year loan option or a 12-month loan and someone can go down and experience game time and if their their path is potentially blocked in Ireland and still have the opportunity of, of coming back and for the IRFU to still have some control over their development? Yeah, I hadn't really thought about it too deeply into permanent into that and it actually makes a lot neither of sense. did i to be totally yeah. honest this is uh, back, when in, you think back about, in the beer mat stuff here yeah but when, when leave, it, leave it to another week if you want no john, john ryan uh, is a perfect example of that i know he was at the later end of his career and i don't know how you manage it when there's someone up and coming and you want and they might get into the system a little bit faster if they stay and all the rest of it but you know i, I played with john i was messaging him a small bit but not not a whole lot and like you just get the idea that you think about things very differently when you're inside in the same system all the time even when you're an injured player when i was injured i didn't go into any meetings with monster you just don't go into them anymore and you actually look at the game very differently you look at your own games at the weekend and you're kind of going why are we running that and you see different teams kind of doing something different because you're just out of that system a small bit more uh, and i think obviously that gets accentuated when you're actually away somewhere and you get different learnings from different people I think the, the hard part there is the control over it, you know, so if you have it very strategically aligned, will the other countries play ball because they know what you're doing and you're getting a lot of a lot out of them? Um, or how do you manage those players? Who has control over them? When do they come back? Do they miss opportunities and someone jumps them in their own province all of a sudden? Because there are, I wouldn't say bolters, but there are players that just get opportunities, one, two injuries, and all of a sudden they're in. Uh, so you do want to make your own um, leagues and country as strong as possible but I, I definitely think there's something in there if they can find some way to control that um, but you know the going back to the like what do we need to do going into the next World Cup I think I had a very um, uh, very critical kind of thought around it like it, it, I think it goes back to the fact that this was the massive opportunity the best Irish team to go into a World Cup and they, they fell short just about um, and we can you know that can be looked at kind of softly and no criticism but for me when I look through that team and I was thinking about who would replace, you know, Ty Furlong and who would replace you know, Johnny Sexton when it's obviously wide open. Like, we don't know. Uh, Jack Crowley obviously came from nowhere to be his backup all of a sudden. Uh, people will talk about Sam Prendergast, but there's probably someone else out there at the moment that could well be that, that, that next Jack Crowley by the next World Cup. So we actually don't even know where that player pool is at the moment. But when you think about the influence that, you know, James Lowe, Mac Hansen have had, Bundy Aki, uh, Johnny Sexton, um, you think about like the the strength and depth that you had at second row, despite James Ryan getting getting injured for the crucial one. I think you would have added massively to it. It's very hard to see a stronger squad than that. Um, no matter how well rugby goes in the next four years for Ireland, you know, I know uh, Lou said you'd like to have had more game time into killer. Um, maybe another option that Lou said, another option at tight head, like Bernard has said. You know, you'd like to 
you'd like to replay it again and see if uh, a younger um, out half had come on and just you know throwing the cat amongst the pigeons and see where you land possibly you don't land in the right spot but you you, you know it's very very hard to see Ireland being stronger than that and that's where you kind of come out of you know you come out of writing about it for the whole World Cup cycle and you're heading into another one I don't have those answers and I don't know it looks like an uphill challenge to get a stronger squad than that but that's why the likes of Andy Farrell and maybe David Humphreys are in those positions because they, they maybe can see it but it's a it's an uphill challenge to replace some of the players at the moment and as well you know I don't know how long Peter Romani has left but Within all these players that play lovely rugby and play very effective stuff, you have to have the dog inside there as well. Very intelligent rugby player, by the way. Very intelligent, that's set piece. But having that mindset in around the team as well, very, very hard to replace these people. And I think that's the massive challenge. What's going to get to the next World Cup uh, even better than this group? Because we thought they were mentally rock solid with Andy Farrell. Um, we thought we had more depth than ever. And all of a sudden, we're still falling short. So it's going to be uh, it's going to be a real challenge. But there are some key positions like Bernard has said that we just need to get even stronger at it just isn't strong enough to go and win a World Cup against teams that have a set piece that are going to rock the whole tournament you know as Johnny said there Birch, like we, we thought we had more depth than ever but is the issue that we didn't trust the depth or didn't use the depth like Andy Farrell has spoken in the last couple of years about how you need you need 50 players to win a Rugby World Cup and he's gone to to great lengths to try and develop that with extra games in New Zealand, A matches against uh, in, in the RDS last year, uh, the Emerging Ireland Tour. But still, when it came down to it, like he's given the opportunities to develop the players, but when it came down to it in the crunch situations in the World Cup, there was a reluctance to to use them and to trust them in the moment and to see whether they sank or swam. And you look at, bring it back to South Africa, you look at South Africa and against Ireland, even Etzebeth goes off after I know he had been carrying it up, but he went off very, very early in the in the first half. In the World Cup final, he goes off after 58 minutes. And either John Klein or or G. Snyman came on. I can't remember which one came on for him or or Mostert. If Ibn Etzebeth was Irish, he's playing 80 minutes, probably, isn't he? Yeah. Well, we don't we look at we didn't we didn't have the, the... Player so Farrell has done as much as he can, but no, but also, but also as well, like you look at someone like Jean Klein, he's not a proven test player, but Razi Erasmus and Jacques Nienaber trusted him to go in and do that. Yeah, yeah, uh, he's different though. He, you know what you're going to get with Jean Klein, and uh, and full credit to him. Um, and he and he had, had he had a, he has had a big role in South Africa winning the World Cup, but I don't think I think he's. You kind of know. I, I think you know what you're going to get with him, and he complements what what they have, right? So, uh, and I think it's brilliant for him to see him win a World Cup. Um, obviously, having been snubbed by Ireland, uh, and that was the decision. But I think coaches need to be able to make the decision. Far needs to say, "Does he suit us?" No, he doesn't. And Razi goes, "Well, he suits us." And, and, oh, no, and no, no, sorry, I, I don't mean like this. I'm not kind of saying like you know, should John Klein have been in the Irish squad? Yeah. Look, that's it, it. Can be a very oversimplistic argument with that. Um, but it's more that, you know when it came down to it in a crunch game in a World Cup final, South Africa have shown they're they're not afraid to use the, they're not afraid to use the bench. They're not afraid to put in players. Like Dion Fury is a, as another example, as we said, 12 months ago, he was only, or just over 12 months ago, he made his test debut in his, in his mid thirties. Yeah. And there he was covering as captain in a, in a World Cup final. More often than not, Sia Khaleesi played the, the full game on Saturday, but, they've been taking him off early in the second half in a lot of games because they had trust in the in the person but behind him to go in and do the job. Yeah, look, at I, I, I know what you mean. I actually don't think Farrell... Forey's an interesting one because 
he looks like he's a complete left field selection, and he was as the as second hooker. But realistically, they thought they had Malcolm Marks, uh, and he was going to be, you know, a nice option for some of the other games. But when he needed to do it, he did it, and he he, he get that, you know, with someone who's been around the game a lot. And when I I I kind of talked about his journey, and maybe I didn't do him credit. Whenever he played in Grenoble or Leon, he was very very good. He just didn't have the the height. He wasn't a big scrummaging hooker. Or he wasn't the height that you would want as a as a as a seven in in France. So he wasn't um he wasn't a lineup option, and that that probably stopped him having an unbelievable career there. But he's still a very effective uh, rugby player. Um, I think the challenge is, and you look at this. Uh, look at let's look at England. Um, let's look at England, uh, South Africa, and Ar- Argentina who finished one two or New Zealand who finished one two three. Realistically. Um, they've been trying to find players for the last four years, right? Okay, like we have, right? And when it came to the crunch, you know, the back row was for for New Zealand was Shannon Frizzell, Artie Sevilla, Sam Kane. The the locks are uh, Barris, Whitelock, or or Brody Retallick. You know what I mean? The, the same players uh, stay for ten or twelve years unless someone pushes them out. And realistically, for us and the, and the box, the reason they won it was. Their bench, you know, they could afford to have Vincent Cock pick up and not train Monday and bring in Trevor Nakane. You know what I mean? Um, they have Oxniche who would start for every other team, I, I believe, on the bench. They have RG Snyman. RG Snyman, show me another country that he would he doesn't start. He starts for the All Blacks, I think. You know what I mean? So um they could leave uh Kobus Reinach Reinach off the off the squad and go seven one. Like that's the that's that's the reality of it. We we have tried fifty players. Farah's done everything in his power. He's had them all in camp. He's created an unbelievable environment. But the reality is, unfortunately, there's no point having fifty. You need you need twenty five or twenty six who can win you a game in a in a World Cup or in, and we we maybe didn't have. We, I don't think we had that. I don't think Farah had that. And that's not just his fault. That's that's one they're not coming true. Uh, two, he needs them to to prove themselves at European Cup level uh, to a certain extent. Like Dion Fury was a very very good Super Rugby player for all his career. You know what I mean? Uh, so I'm not like he wasn't plucked from nowhere either. He was just obviously a massive gamble as a as a hooker. Um, but again, I think if Malcolm Marks is fit, that never happens. It's it's Bongi and it's Malcolm Marks starting and Bongi coming on or vice versa. So um, and they would have found a way to get Pollard out there. Uh, Pollard would have. One of those nines would have been injured um, at training. So Pollard was coming. But again, how they played that and how, like, I think you try that in any other country and player, or you take Glibok off after 31 minutes, you know, there's a sense of distrust between the management and the players. Like, there wasn't a peep out of anybody. You know what I mean? Um, you look at some of the celebrations of the box, like just when you see some of the players that you forget about who were in that 33-man squad, uh, who got very little game time, but that was the way, and everybody bought into it. So look at yeah, I'm I'm big on at the moment. My big thing is we don't need to produce 70, 80 players. We need to produce 25, 26 who can interchange, can start or come on, and are good enough to beat the All Blacks or or, or, or South Africa, um, or France in a knockout game. That's the that's the challenge, and that's not that like. Jesus, I'm not saying it's easy or, or anyone made any mistakes in the last four years, but that's something that we need to try and make sure we do everything in our power to make certain we give ourselves the best possible opportunity to do it for the next one. No, just one thing on that. Go ahead, Johnny. 
the Jesse Creel resurrection was yeah. unbelievable. Like he just he won't get the credit either. When you look back at the World Cup, you know you think about other people, but when you break it down and some of the analysis the lads have done and some of the some of the defensive closing that he's done on transition and things like that, he's like he was always such a good athlete. You see the shape of him as well. Like he's he's an unbelievable athlete. But the Am was the, the kind of face of her last World Cup win, wasn't he? And everything that he did in transition and defense. And sure, they just didn't need to bring him back. Like, I know he struggled with his own injuries and form and everything else. They just didn't need to actually force him in the way they did with Andre, Andre Pollard because of what Jesse Creel has done. So there's a couple of unsung heroes within that as well. Um, I'm sure they'll be massively respected within the group, but give it a month and they, people won't remember what they did in the World Cup. I think he'll be one of them. So you need to mark that down. He was he was class for them all tournament. Yeah, definitely an unsung hero. Um. Final final couple of minutes, and I'm I'm trying to finish this up because people might notice I'm leaning more and more to my side here as we're going on. The sun is creeping through the window, and it's starting to it's starting to blind me. This is this is what I look like if I if I sit in fr- straight in front of the camera. Um, to wrap it all up, guys, from HE on a nice positive note, your abiding memory of Rugby World Cup 2023. Memory, goodness. I think uh, he's thinking. What he's thinking about it. I think I did last night. So for me, it was it was Portugal, Fiji. Um, tier twos have struggled. Um, in general, um, a lot of hammerings, but Portugal built all the way through and got that win at the end. So, um, for me, it was it was seeing Samuel Marquez kick that conversion to win it for them in the celebration afterwards. Yeah, I think from an Irish perspective, beating South Africa, who have gone on to obviously win it, that was a a huge moment. Uh, I think the hundred Pollards kick in the semi-final for him um, to to win the game and to come back from very little minutes as class. I was uh, I was thinking about a couple of moments and Bernard took that Portugal-Fiji one, Fiji-Australia one, they're, but they're, they're going to be the ones that everyone's talking about. I think they've, they've been class. From our, Ireland's perspective, unfortunately, you're talking about um, beating South Africa in a pool game, <laughs> you know, which isn't exactly where we want to be, but they have beaten the back-to-back um, World Cup winners. And I think the the thirty eight phase slog. Obviously, it's a New Zealand positive and a um, an Irish negative. But to go that close down to the wire in a knockout game, I like you talk about the how you know we're too light on them. But like they gave us something different going into their World Cup. Absolute expectation. The bandwagon was strong. Uh, the expectation was high. They still gave us something. To some of the games I've been most nervous about watching rugby in the last couple of years. I don't really get like that around the international team. I don't know since playing maybe or whatever else it is, but I I got fully back into it and they gave us a lot. There's loads of memories in there, but I think yeah, Andre Pollard kicking kicking goals has to be up there too. Sticking through with your with your fellow kickers for me, it's just anything to do with pool C. Uh, pretty much every game in that pool was just a mad ride from start to finish. So uh, more of that, please. Even even if the draw was as lopsided as we've been complaining about, fellas. Thanks a million for uh for joining us this morning and thanks for the last few weeks. Uh, it's been a hell of a shift across all these podcasts and uh, hopefully we'll have you on again talking URC in the next few weeks. A reminder, Leinster against Edinburgh and Munster Dragons is a URC doubleheader on RT2 and RT player this Saturday. Also on Saturday night then, you have Connacht taking on Ulster at the sports ground and we will have a reaction to all of that next week on the RT Rugby podcast uh, from next Wednesday. So do join us then. Fellas, thanks a million. Thank you. See you. The RTE Rugby World Cup Podcast, sponsored by Bank of Ireland.